Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I got to Juilliard and all my teachers were telling me, you've got to get out of your head. You're thinking too much. And I was like, I don't know how to get out of my head. So I started moving. Good movement. And welcome to Redefining Yoga, a movement by Laura podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help Everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so that together we can be uplifted, benefiting ourselves and all beings. Today, I have a very special guest, my dear friend, Eunice Wong, who is also a yoga teacher at my studio. She is brilliant in every way. I can't wait for you to hear her discuss anything from yoga and her own experience to veganism and her path into that. She is the author of What the Health, an extraordinary book that dives deep into um, our modern day lifestyle and the, what we eat. She is, I, there's not much more I could say about her. You just have to hear the podcast. So tune on in to listen to my discussion with Eunice Wong. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Eunice first. Uh, she is an extraordinary human being that happens to be a good friend. She's a multiple award-winning actor, writer, editor, and teacher. Her most recent book is What the Health, the official companion book to the documentary of the same name. She also wrote The Sustainability Secret, which is the official companion book to the documentary Cowspiracy. As an actor, Eunice trained at the Juilliard School and has appeared nationwide and internationally in professional theaters and is the recipient of multiple awards. Eunice is the chief editor of the Countering Violence Against Women series on truthdig.com, as well as the editor of the Truth Dig book review. As a teacher, Eunice has taught poetry at the New Jersey State Prison, a men's supermax facility in Trenton, New Jersey. And she also teaches yoga at my studio, Yoga Stream in Princeton, New Jersey. She is a mama of two, a stepmom of two. She's a doggy mama of two rescued greyhounds and a wife to Chris Hedges, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. So she's slightly talented. <laughs> Welcome, Eunice. Thank you, Laura. It's so great to be here. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you. And I feel like we're going to have many of these because you, um, you're like a walking dictionary of information and inspiration. And so I think this will be a series dedicated to Eunice Wong. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, let's talk about how you discovered yoga. Can you tell everybody your pathway and how you fell in love with yoga or found it? Yeah, I actually started doing yoga way back in, I want to say like 2000. Um, and I had been interested in movement for a very long time. I was still at Juilliard when I started doing yoga. And I won't go into like the long detail of like my childhood and upbringing, but I was very, very cerebral. Mm -hmm. Um, I got to Juilliard and all my teachers were telling me, you've got to get out of your head. You're thinking too much. And I was like, I don't know how to get out of my head. So I started moving mm -hmm. and that was the only way that I could access other things that were going on that weren't like so purely intellectual. And since then I've been just sort of seeking out different ways of movement. So I studied martial arts for a long time. Um, yoga, I think, was the second big thing that I discovered. I've also done circus aerials, personal training. I was a gym rat for a long time. But the yoga, I honestly cannot remember what led me to seek it out. But I started doing Ashtanga uh, in a studio on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. And it was the Mysore method, so it was very different than going to a group class and having, you know, a teacher, they, they teach you one 
pose at a time in a Mm -hmm. prescribed sequence that never changes. And there was something about the very meditative and ascetic quality of the studio and the practice that I really felt drawn to. Um, So I did that for many, many years. And I think I did it for 15 years before I even met you. And so you were actually, Yoga Stream was the second uh, form of yoga that I did. So I didn't know anything about Yengar or Yin Yoga or, you know, any of the other stuff floating around out there. And I love that I started with Ashtanga because it gave me this fabulous foundation and made me very strong. But then when I came to you, I was like, oh my God, there's like a billion other worlds out here. And there was so much creativity and just inspiration. And I had never done inversions before, which was like a big head and eye and soul opener. So that was my my yoga. And now you're a big journey. inversion queen. And now I'm like a total <laughs> inversion freak. <laughs> it's so, right. It just like as a hook. Well, this is interesting. I've never thought of Ashtanga in this way, but I bet it was a good pathway for you for your cerebral brain mm-hmm. because having that prescription, um, if those of you who've not taken an Ashtanga class similar to like a Bikram class, there are, it's a series that you follow and there's, it has mul- there's multiple series, but you do the same um, set of sequences or poses um, in the same way every time. And so I think probably your academic side really liked that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that it was built from the ground up. Like I really Mm -hmm. liked that you didn't move on in the Mysore method until you had, you know, gotten the basics of each pose and you could really pay attention to each thing. Um, It's funny because I was talking to someone last week about Ashtanga and he said, it seems like so many people I meet who have advanced practices are ex-Ashtangis. <laughs> and I'm like, that's sort so of like true. A, a, a compliment and a not so great compliment to Ashtanga. But it, you know, it was like a really fabulous foundation. But after a while, because of the sequences that never change, I felt like I just hit a bit of a plateau, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I think that we could probably have a whole discussion on just Ashtanga and its its benefits and its you know, pros and cons. Uh, but I think that's that a lot of people find that. And my brother and I even talked about that in a podcast that with that same series, uh, there's like a lack of creativity, but there's also, there's an imbalance in it inherent. Mm-hmm. There's especially the primary series. There are a lot of forward folds yeah, and you don't um, balance the body in the movement way that we'd like to. Well, um, after doing your teacher training, I went back and looked at the sequence and I thought, that is awfully early to get into triangle. You know, like there yeah. were things that just seemed not so biomechanically intelligent, I thought. Right, right. So looking back now at, I guess it's been eight years that you've been practicing yoga, or maybe 10, sounds like. Well, yoga, yeah. it's been, I've been practicing for 18 years. 18 years. Yeah, oh, I've been wow. at Yoga Stream for four and oh a my half gosh. years. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> I know, it is crazy. Um so how would you say that it's that it's impacted you in terms of your body, in terms of your mind, that that very cerebral um, place that you probably were a little stuck in, and your spirit? Oh, God, that's a huge <laughs> question. Well, here's something very interesting that happens to me while I practice. And I'm not, I've mentioned it to other people, and I've never found anyone that it's also happened to, but... Sometimes when I'm practicing, I'll get flashback images in my head from moments in the past that I have not thought about for literally decades. Like, and they're not big, dramatic things. They might be like the view from my fire escape when, when I lived in New York, you know, like just a quick mm. flash. And it's the, like the senses and the smells and the wind and it's like everything. And then it'll be gone. And I always think that, you know, I think of our bodies, and I think you feel this way too, that our bodies are like this register that we, it's like, I think you've actually used this metaphor. It's a register like in a bed and breakfast. Yeah, totally. Where the guests come in and <laughs> right. like they write down their names and they're like, that was the best breakfast I've ever had. Um, yeah. So I feel like our bodies are like that register mm-hmm. and our experiences and our emotions write themselves on us. 
in ways that we don't even understand. And they get stored in our bodies, they get stored in our hips, and we don't really dig them out necessarily, but they're all there. So everything that's happened to you is like in your body somewhere. And when you move in a way like yoga that has, you know, full range of motion, it's not just one repetitive movement. It's all kinds of different ways of moving. You access those things. Mm -hmm. And that's my theory behind my flashbacks. It's like, I moved my hip in a certain way and that released something that sent that flashback into my head. But in more, more directly to answer your question, I just feel like it's allowed me to read that register mm-hmm. more completely rather than having it be like this book that I've shut away and put in the closet. Yes. You know? Right. So yoga is like a way of opening that book up And being able to read it and being able to remember and maybe being able to think ahead or to reflect on what I'm going through in the present moment. Yes, I know. I always say that the body is always present. Mm -hmm. It might store the things, like you said, the stories that it has the fabric of our past. But if we're, if you're paying attention, like you're talking about paying attention to the stories that come up, they will reveal themselves and we're not just locking them away and stuffing them down or ignoring them, whether it was a a wonderful or not so wonderful moment. um, I think that being in our bodies in every like moment to moment allows us to have that observation and that awakeness to it. Right. And the other amazing thing about yoga is the importance of the breath, Mm -hmm. which is also deeply, deeply tied to emotional life. I mean, most people in our society don't breathe enough. They breathe very quickly and very shallowly, like just enough basically to not keel over. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. They're they're just getting by. Right, right. But we're not taking in these deep, full breaths unless we really think about it. And the doctor's like, take a deep breath now. And then you're like, (gasps) yeah. And then it sounds funny because you're like, I'm so not used to that. And then you feel like that was really weird. I'm just going to go back to my quick, shallow breathing. But another connection between... Uh, breathing and emotion is that uh, as an actor, I've found that you can actually affect your emotional state by the way you breathe. Mm. And so there are different- fight or flight or they kind of going into different states of- Well, even more literally than that, like if you're, I mean, there are different ways to get at it, but say you're, you have a scene in which, you know, there's a big emotional, I don't know, like sobbing or something like the breathing pattern of someone who's sobbing is so different than someone who is not, who's very calm. And so as a purely technical exercise, Mm -hmm. you could try, you know, doing that breathing pattern like that, (gasps) that shudder and then that hold and then that release. And if you do it enough, the body actually kicks in and sometimes will take over and give you a taste of what it is like to be able to have that Mm -hmm. in that moment you know, or or fear, you know, that very, very like shallow, very quick, which is funny because that's how people breathe, shallow and quick. Yeah. And it's kind of the fear pattern mm-hmm. um, to do that. And so the the breathing is completely connected to emotions for right. me. And yoga is the physical embodiment of that breath, you know, that we can deepen our breath mm-hmm. and calm ourselves and work out things that we don't want in our bodies. I often say to my classes that yoga is a form of waste removal. Yes. Because it's Mm -hmm. a way of getting stuff out because your body actually knows how it wants to be. It knows how to be healthy. It knows how to be strong. And we put stuff in it that accumulates and coagulates and creates these blockages and yoga is like this great broom, mm. right? That you can just like sweep the stuff out with the breath. So every breath you take is like, out you go. I don't need you. And I'm going to take in what I do need. Oh, I love that. And I think um, you would agree that the movement really at least facilitates and if not initiates these better breathing patterns. Definitely. It's like they're, they're like in a dance together. Definitely. So yeah. the way we move in a variety of ways also helps us have a more robust Mm-hmm. breathing pattern. Yeah. I think of the the asanas, the poses as expressions of mm-hmm. the breath. 
you know, so it is completely like a dance where you're expressing through the body, the breath, and maybe some of the emotions you're, you're going through. <laughs> Here's another funny thing. So I don't know how much you want to get into politics, but Oh, why not? <laughs> why not? Okay, so after the um, Kavanaugh con- confirmation, I was, I was, I mean, like every other woman I know was just filled with rage. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and I had to teach a class that week, and I thought, why don't I just do a class on rage? Right. Yeah, <laughs> like this is a real emotion. It's a real right. thing. And, and we, we shouldn't, can't. Yeah. No. There's that stereotype in yoga where it's all just zen and serene and you walk into the studio and everything drops away, but we're all human. Mm-hmm. And these are real, legitimate, appropriate yes. reactions to things that are going on around us. So let's not compartmentalize it because that would just be a form of denial. Yes. Let's acknowledge it and practice with it. Oh, I love that. You know, did you do some yelling or some like? We didn't really, do any yelling. Relief. There's release was, in the bot, like how we move our absolutely, arms. Absolutely, like there's this, release, like, and there was like you breath. know, throw on yeah. some punches, throw on some kicks, move as you know, just express your what you are feeling, what you're experiencing right now through your body. Mm-hmm. Use your breath, like lion's breath. I feel like is like this fabulous yes. release, you know, to make some audible noise when you exhale, not just to let it passively escape you but to push it out and feel that active breath yeah you know escape think, into yes. the world i think so we would we would all be so much happier if we and that's how i started the fire class like seven right. years ago was this idea that if you're not familiar i have this fire class which is really taken idea of the the chakra system and and emotions and physical movement and yoga asana and kundalini and kind of just like melded it all together into this wonderful movement experience where it is about moving through uncomfortable, um, repetitive movement like you do in kundalini and and express it, letting it out, like not, not just succumbing to it or stuffing it down, but um, releasing it because we are conditioned to kind of grit, bear and grit it. Yeah, and I felt feel like, especially for women, you know, mm. culturally, oh, we're yeah. so inculcated to repress mm-hmm. our anger or rage. And, you know, from the time you're little girls, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not okay to be angry and yell and have a tantrum. Right. Um, and, you know, even if someone didn't share the same political feelings that I did, there's always something, you yes. know. There's so many microaggressions against women um, or, you know, and if there was a man in the class, there wasn't that day. But if there were, there's like everyone is feeling these are universal human emotions. Right. And you can't just pretend they don't exist. Right. Right. And men have different um, ways that they've had to stuff down their emotions, right. too. So it, it it is, I think, that's what's so beautiful about yoga in particular is that if it's, it's an intentional movement system that is offers you the opportunity to feel, yeah, to move, to breathe, to feel, and to connect to yourself. Yourself, absolutely. And then after the class, we all felt like so much better. <laughs> yeah, everybody smiled. <laughs> it was like a window after the storm, and the sun was coming in. You know, right? Ah, the, everybody's singing. So, kind of speaking of epiphanies, let's talk about how your yoga helped you f- realize or uncover the veil. And connect deeper to your own path in, in terms of walking in your values. And you had always been an, an environmentalist, a feminist. But how? What did yoga do to deepen your connection to your innermost self? Well, I think you're being very humble here. <laughs> <laughs> so, in my teacher training with Laura, she introduced us to the. Uh, concept of ahimsa, which of course is the first precept of yoga, which means non-harm or non-violence. And that is the number one foundational bedrock of a yoga practice of being a true yogi. And I always thought, well, ahimsa, that's very nice. You know, you don't go around punching people and you're nice to, you know, people you meet and you say please and thank you. And there you go. That's ahimsa. (laughs) (laughs) 
Do um, no major harm. Yeah. Right. Do no major yeah. harm. Don't, yeah. 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 Like, don't go around shooting people. I yeah. can handle yeah. that. I've got yeah. that down. So what you did, of course, was invite us to look deeper into how we live our lives, in particular, how we eat and what kind of clothes we wear. Um, and the things that go into our food, our clothes, our whatever, our, you know, skincare products. And to realize that there are billions of animals being tortured and exploited and killed to, to support our way of living, our, our societal way of living. And I knew nothing about it. I also didn't know anything about the impact of the animal agriculture industry on the environment. And it came up in class one day when you said, or no, I guess we were, we were talking about clashes and obstructions. And I raised the fact that, you know, I was obsessed with climate change and couldn't really shake the sort of impending, <laughs> impending doom, doom of it yeah. that I, I felt. And you were like, well, you should, you should look into going vegan. And I was like, why? What does that have to do with it? <laughs> And of course, it has everything to do with it. And I had no idea. And I was floored. Like you said, I've been an, an environmentalist, considered myself an environmentalist my whole life. And I didn't know anything about how animal agriculture affects, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, ocean dead zones and rainforest destruction and habitat destruction for animals and land use and water use. And it just goes on and on, coral reef destruction. And then, of course, that was the year that Cowspiracy came out, which is kind of like perfect timing. Yes, it was. Yeah. So everything came together from your teacher training to going to see Cowspiracy, um, which if you haven't seen it, you should definitely go out. I think it's still on Netflix. And it really, truly was like the door opened. You know, mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, well, I cannot live the way I used to live because if I did, I would just be living in complete hypocrisy right? of everything that I have claimed to believe in, mm -hmm. to give value to. And so I have to change. And it turned out that changing the way I eat, becoming vegan, changing the clothes I wear, it really wasn't that big of a switch because... I felt dedicated to why I was doing it. You mm -hmm. know, it wasn't because I wanted to lose 10 pounds. And not that that's a bad reason necessarily to drop like dairy, for instance, but it's to, to choose to live a certain way because you're dedicated to someone or something outside of yourself. It's a very... You know, it's funny because you're doing it for someone or something else, but it's actually a very fulfilling way to live. It is. I think it's very liberating. Yeah. It's uh, when people talk about something being so hard, I think change is always perceived as being challenging. But I think this is a, this is more than a change. It's a transformation. It's an illumination. And then it's a real return to our our deepest soul, I, I believe, because I, I think that when we really connect and open our eyes, uh, no one genuinely wants to participate in, in doing any harm, whether it's to the environment or certainly to these innocent animals. And it's, it's almost like this, talk about breathing. It's like this, mm -hmm. it's like letting, relief. it's a relief yeah. because there's, you're not holding on to the inconsistencies or hypocrisies or ignorances. I mean, I mean, we can, we can be super intelligent and super ignorant. I think, I mean, I've been in the same place you have been. And so I'm always encouraging people to, to start somewhere. Uh, it's not readily available information. At, like you're super intelligent and you didn't know. I didn't know, you know, I didn't make a connection that a baby cow had to be taken from the mom until I, until I was 32 years old. Right. I mean, I'm like, what? Why didn't I right. figure that out? Like yeah. I know about reproduction, but it just, it's so, we're so powerfully saturated with the, all the different messages of, of using animals for their products that it becomes just quotidian. We just don't think about it as, as we don't connect it to an actual living, breathing, sentient, feeling um, being. So anyway, I think 
it's, I think you're such a great example. Of course, Eunice is humble now because she took that information and ran with it because then she went on to write the companion book for that uh, particular documentary, Cowspiracy, which is an amazing book. And then she wrote the book, What the Health, which also has, um, which is, has a, a movie by the same filmmakers who did Cowspiracy. So once you open the floodgates, and we could talk about this a long time, but what were, how, how was it? Um, so a lot of people will ask me, well, I'm really interested in this, but how about my family, friends? Like, what were the steps that you took for the people that were in your inner circle? Um, did you say, hey, we're all going vegan? Or did you say, hey, I'd like to go vegan? What do you guys think? What were your... Uh, well, I went to see Cowspiracy with my husband, and he had the same reaction mm-hmm. that I did. That he He's also a writer, and he's done a lot of research on different things, and he had no idea mm-hmm. about these impacts on the environment. Which is incredible, because like he's a Pulitzer Prize journalist. I mean, this is, right. you know, this is what we're saying. It's like, this is not readily known information, and certainly right. not talked about. In, in fact, it's hidden, because that, that benefits the the billion dollar companies. Anyway, sure. So yeah. You guys, and yeah. so Chris's thing that he's been writing about for years is the corporate state. And he, he walked out and he said, this, this is the missing puzzle in mm. what I've been doing. You know, this fits right into everything I've ever written about. Uh, so he and I were both on the same page, leaving the theater, yeah. <laughs> which was great. <laughs> and I, you know, I hear stories about people who are vegan, whose partners are not vegan. And that is really hard. Um, but I, very luckily didn't have to um, deal with that. Uh, But we also have two kids who at the time were three and six. And they were, I wasn't sure at first how to approach it. And I actually, for a couple weeks after seeing Cowspiracy, I I didn't really talk about it with my kids. I was kind of like percolating in my brain, like, how how are we going to do this? Because they, they loved, you know, chicken nuggets and mac and cheese and spaghetti and meatballs and Mm -hmm. cheese pizza and yogurt. And so I don't know that I ever, we never like sat down with them and said, we're going to be vegan and this is why. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think at that age was probably a good good approach. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think of the turning point as being what I call the dumpling incident. And Laura, I've told you the story probably several times now. <laughs> but my daughter's, she was three. One of my daughter's favorite foods at the time was um, pork dumplings from the local Chinese restaurant. And so the first time she asked for them after Chris and I had seen Cowspiracy and decided we wanted to be vegan, I said, well how about we try vegetable dumplings? And she was not having it. She was like, no, I want pork dumplings. And I thought, you know, I was just, this was completely like on the fly. I hadn't planned out how I was going to do this. And I thought, okay, what if I just tell her the truth? (laughs) Like very, very in a, as non dramatic, non traumatic kind of way that I can. So I said, well, honey, you know, you know what's in pork dumplings? They're actually made with dead pigs. And she loves animals. Right. As many or most children do. And she sort of thought about it and I could see it kind of sinking in. And she was very reluctant, but she said, hmm, okay, I'll try the vegetable dumplings. And so we tried them and they were very tasty. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. And she really liked them. And so that, in my memory, was the last time that <clears throat> my kids asked for um, any animal product food. And in fact, my kids are now incredibly strong vegan advocates. And I think that there is something I often hear from parents who are interested in becoming vegan. They're like, yeah, but what about my kids? They'll never do it. And I actually think that kids are easier I do. than I do adults, mm-hmm. easier to change. And actually, Dr. Joel Furman, who's like a fantastic, you know, best-selling New York Times author, but an incredibly experienced and um, knowledgeable 
nutrition doctor says that in his, you know, 25 years of practice, he's seen that much more often children are more willing to give up bad habits than adults are. So sometimes I think, you know, I wonder if the adults maybe unconsciously are putting their reluctance to change on their kids. Right. But if you talk to children, especially about animals, mm-hmm. and hopefully you've been teaching your children all along that it's not good to hurt or kill other beings if you don't need to, you know, that's just like a basic thing you want to teach your children. That is completely in line right. with a vegan lifestyle. So. Children are not taught that you have to hurt or kill animals to eat them for the most part. Or if they are, it's sort of like, let's not talk about that. We have to eat it because we need to be healthy and have our chicken. So let's ignore that and just pet your dog and we'll be kind to the dog and we'll eat the cow. But if children understand that you don't have to kill or hurt these animals in order to be healthy, then they're like, well, why are we doing it? Exactly. And that is truly, I mean, from the mouths of babes, like that is the question. Why are you doing it? Yeah, you see all these videos. um, I'm sure you've seen them where the little, a kid is like grabbing hold of a duck or a goat or a, you know, whatever it is that has, that they've been raised with. And they're like, you won't, you know, and and you just see the the anguish and the pain. And this happened to be in cultures where they're, or, or in families where they're living with the animals and have had the chance to even connect to them in some way. Um, But I think all kids instinctively would be horrified if they actually knew what was in a hot dog, what was in a, you know, pork dumpling and, and what was required for it to be there. Because no matter what, it's got to die, right? It's got to die for it to end up on your plate. And so I think this leads to another question that I would love your opinion on. Um, We could talk about all this stuff for hours, but I, I, I think that we as humans um, are reluctant to change. And then we there's a lot of roadblocks, especially in eating, um, that we can put in the way. Like, well, how about my health? What do I need this for calcium or protein? And well, I'm going to actually buy it from a, a locally sourced, quote unquote, um, grass-fed, humane, you know, cow um, barn or something. And we put these labels in our head that make us feel better about doing something. Mm-hmm. We kind of know deep down in that very soulful place that is is still not consistent with our values. What do you say to people who who say, well, what about um, humane raised animals? First of all, I want to say that when you go to the grocery store and you pick up a carton of eggs that says um, free range, something like that, there's no regulation at all on those labels, free range, humanely raised, whatever it is, like sleeps in the bed with me and cuddles all night. There's no regulation on those labels. And so a free range hen could be a chicken who's placed in a dirt yard with the footprint the size of like an old time phone booth Mm -hmm. for 10 minutes a day and then put back in the crate. That could be free range. So there's no way of knowing from these labels how the animals are treated. The labels are there to make consumers feel better about buying that product Mm -hmm. because they want you to keep buying the product. And then in terms of grass-fed, they go through this in Cowspiracy. Grass-fed beef is actually much more environmentally unsustainable than factory farms, which is not a plug for factory farms. Not at all. But it's incredibly land intensive, water intensive. It takes longer for those animals to grow. And so they need more feed. Um, They just need more resources. And finally, at the end, they get killed. Yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And you and I were talking about this fabulous book that has nothing to do with the animal agriculture industry. It's a novel called um, Never Let Me Go by Katsuo Ishiguro, who's a British novelist. And uh, so some spoilers here. It's a science fiction, uh, but not like spaceship science fiction. It's set in the future where these children are cloned from, quote, real children or real people. 
they're cloned and then they're raised in this environment in which they have everything. They live like basically on a country club and they go to like boarding school, like this private school, and they get instruction in music and art and they're taken on shopping trips. But the um, clincher is (laughs) that these kids are being raised to be organ donors so that when they reach the age of like 20 or 25, then their organs get harvested. They go on the table and their whatever, their liver is, Mm -hmm. their kidney is taken out. They're basically killed. (laughs) They're killed because if you survive your first kidney, you know, with withdrawal, then you might be called on next to give up your heart and then it's all over. Yeah, yeah. Mm. (laughs) And so I think that that's a fabulous analogy for using animals in this way. Like you can, you can treat them as nicely as you want, but in the end, what are you going to do with them? Right. We're still judging. And that's the thing I've often said with vegans, vegans are looked upon. Some of, some of us have been looked upon as being very critical and like super judgy and, you know, very radical, extreme, but it's like, who's really judging here? When you judge that you are your taste is superior to a a being's life, I think that's a pretty big judgment versus saying, I'm not judging if you're as small as a little mouse or if you're as large as a horse or if you're a human, um, a child or an an older human. (laughs) All of us deserve the same compassion and kindness and uh, the, the ability to live our lives fully and free of suffering and pain. And certainly we don't have to be killed for somebody's taste. Right. And I actually think it it goes so deep into the roots of society. The fact that we live in a culture that is based on this normalization Mm -hmm. of exploitation and torture and murder of killing uh, and killing of these animals, like we just accept it. And so there's a part of our brains, just our meaning like society's brain, that accepts killing and violence. And I think that you see how that ripples outwards in how our nation deals with wars, how it deals with immigrants, how it deals with, you know, police violence. It's just, it's this constant. And you can't say, oh, well, we're just going to kill animals and think that it won't affect how we interact with other human beings. Right. I really think that our war culture comes from this culture of normalizing killing. I I totally agree. And especially since factory farming has come around and this killing has just um, grown exponentially. Mm -hmm. And became mechanized. Mechanized. And um, with that, of course, you you make each, each one of those animals a product. And there's there's no connection you can, from the workers who are having to raise and then slaughter, transport all of it to the people that are buying the packaged styrofoam wrap or whatever, a cellophane wrapped um, product. It's you total disconnect that this was a living being. Mm-hmm. And um, so again, this all goes back to Ahimsa. If we really, in my mind, are practicing non-harm, then we have like not eating animals actually is quite frankly the easiest thing right. <laughs> you know sometimes it's it's harder to not want to harm people who are who are really um just mean uh but animals are innocent they truly are they are not deserving of this and so i would just encourage anyone to reflect on your own choices in terms of what you eat in terms of what you buy and wear and sit on all of that um if it was an animal, is it necessary to, to, to purchase those products? And let's talk now about the health benefits. So I always say like some people are not going to be as connected to an, the animal suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like we are all wired in different ways. So I think that the environment is now as huge of a, of an, of a reason to become vegan, but also health. I think that's kind of like the bottom line that will ultimately change some people because they do want to be the the healthiest. They want to feel the best. And you are an expert on it now, having written What the Health, your recent book. 
What did you find most surprising? Um, I know that's a huge question, but in in your investigation um, in what the health, in terms of our uh, present current health system and the diseases, um, any any thoughts on what was the most surprising um, statistic? I think I don't know about. I mean, there are so many mind-boggling statistics, but I guess generally what I had not realized was how deeply our government is intertwined with the selling of animal products. I mean, I knew that corporations were, you know, eyeball deep in it because they stood to make these billions of dollars, but I didn't realize that the government runs these, basically these, these marketing programs to push uh, you know, eggs and beef and pork. They also have the they also have the same kind of programs for some vegetables, but because they don't have the same funds coming in from those industries, they're much like you don't see like you see the incredible edible egg and you see got milk and beef. It's what's for dinner. You don't really see like got the, broccoli, the popcorn ad, or <laughs> <Yeah>. like blueberries. <laughs> <Yeah>. You know. <laughs> For me, yeah, broccoli growers of America are probably not the <laughs> the elite um, billion dollar right exactly farmers. Yeah, and then realizing that the government gets so much money from these industries through lobbyists, and so it's this symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. in which the industries funnel money into the government, and the government creates not only these advertising campaigns but creates legislation that protects these industries to continue doing what they do despite the uh, the massive avalanche of scientific evidence out there um, that is published in you know peer-reviewed science and medical journals that these foods are incredibly damaging to our health it just needs a system overhaul and instead what's going on or a movement, for example. Yes, a movement. Yeah. <laughs> Grassroots um, movement. Exactly. Yeah. Instead, of what's going on is there, the people in power are sort of digging in their heels and entrenching the system even more. It's like, let's just keep this going. We know that people are dying by the troves, but we're making so much money. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so let's keep doing it. We are our own factory farm, you know, products yeah. as well in a way. Yeah. And, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is also part of that. It was like, you know, when all the pieces started coming together, it was like it was like a braid or, you know, seeing, you know, that symbol of the snake eating its own tail because you have the corporations creating these products that make people incredibly sick who then need the lifelong pills to control their cholesterol because they're eating too much, you know, animal products. And then conversely, the the money from the industries will go into the government, which will create these blanket laws to protect the industries to keep on doing what they're doing so they can keep keep making people sick who will keep taking the pills. And, you know, it yes, just keeps going yes. over and over. And it just is this incredible, like, n- network of... of <laughs> of evil. I right. don't know. <laughs> Network of evil. Uh, well, I think, and and this, is, this brings up a really good point. When I first started learning about this, I've been vegan 17 years. Um, it was overwhelming and it can be actually, it can almost shut you down because you realize like there is so much at play here. So even if you, from a conscientious standpoint, want to do something different, there's a lot working against you because from the fact that they make you know, meat and dairy cheaper for through subsidies and uh, through advertising, through marketing. We're learning, like we're brainwashed at such a young age that you need this to be healthy and to grow. You need calcium, you need protein from animal products. Um, it can be overwhelming. And that's why this movement is so important. And this, that's why your book is so important because it really highlights all the actual science-based evidence of why a plant-based diet is far superior to an animal product diet. And what would be like three things you would say were the top kind of most damaging for people in terms of animal products? I would say, I would put dairy Mm -hmm. at the top of the list. Yeah. The other, when you asked about like a particular surprising 
fact, one, one thing that comes to mind is that we are all constantly producing tumors all the time. Mm-hmm. And I did not know that. They looked at autopsy studies of women who had been killed in, like, say, car accidents. And, you know, from the ages of, like, 30 to 50, there was some incredible percentage. I don't remember the exact number, but it was like, you know, 45% had undetected breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And, but the thing is, the body normally should be able, through immune response, to target those tumors and eradicate them. But we are all producing tumors all the time. And when you eat a food, like all animal products, basically, but in particular dairy that has growth hormones, IGF factor one in it, because think about what cow's milk is supposed to be. It's a growth fluid for a tiny little cow. You know, they're born at 60 pounds and then a full grown cow is like 1500 pounds. So there's a lot of growth, growth stimulants in, in cow's milk. And it doesn't matter whether it's organic or it's non-organic or it's pasture raised or like the cow is the happiest cow ever. It still has those growth factors in it because that's inherently what it is. Right. So if you put those two facts together, that we are all constantly producing tumors all the time and that milk, cow's milk is full of growth stimulants. Well, you're, you're, feeding those growth stimulants through all of those tiny tumors and you don't want those tumors to grow no and if they do that becomes a serious problem so when you're eating dairy you're really you're kind of playing russian roulette right with something like that it's also full of hormones because most of the cows who are on dairy farms are pregnant or have just given birth or both right so they're filled with female mammalian reproductive hormones. And like I said, with the growth stimulants, that is just what milk is. It doesn't matter if it's organic. It's just in every, all cow's milk. It has growth factors. It has reproductive stimulants, uh, reproductive hormones. So I feel like dairy is like the number one thing to get off the list. Yeah, I mean, here's the newsflash. Are you a baby cow? (laughs) Right? I mean, really, we have to kind of like actually think about it. And once you start thinking that way, and once you get off the addiction, by the way, because there is an opiate compound in there that is similar to uh, opium that makes you feel good. And and you do have to, it's probably the one food group that you would be physiologically feel like you have an addiction to. So you do have to get over that little hump, maybe six weeks um, four to six weeks. And then once you're over it, you'll look at it like, whoa, that is, that is, that's for a baby cow. Yeah. I am not a baby cow and I shouldn't be drinking that, eating it, having it in anything. Cause it's in a lot of stuff. You have to look for it in the form of whey, casein, um, dairy, but yes. So that's, and, and that's think about it. I mean, human beings are the only species that continues to drink mammalian milk past infancy not only milk, but another species milk, <laughs> right, which is right. really weird. It is really bizarre. And if you want to think about how you might approach the consumption of cow's milk, if you weren't, you know, acculturated to think of it as normal, just think of how you would feel if there was like women's breast milk for sale. Yeah. Yeah. In the I, grocery store or right. We would be grossed out by that, but that's actually way more, uh, makes a lot more logic. It does, actually. I mean, not like, not that you would want to, but like that would make more sense than drinking a cow's milk. And then from the, God, like the, um, I don't know what to call it, the moral, the ethical standpoint, you know, I have two kids and I breastfed them for a long time each and I loved it. It was just the Mm. most incredible bonding experience. And there are chemicals. There's a chemical feedback loop that occurs when a mother breastfeeds her infant. And then to to find out that in order to market dairy, all these baby cows have to be taken away from their mothers almost immediately after birth. And that the mother cows mourn the loss of their babies. And dairy farmers who would be 
you would think would be the last ones to admit to this, will tell you that the mother cows will wail and bellow for days. They'll stay in the spot where they last saw their baby and just pace back and forth. They won't eat. Mm. The other cows will actually come around and it looks like they're comforting the mother cow. It's just horrific to think about. And, you know, empathy is a quality that is so lacking in our society these days. But if you really stop and think about what it would be like to be a mother whose baby is taken away, I mean, that shoots at like the bedrock of It's horrific. humanity. It does. It does. It's like, and as a feminist, as an environmentalist, as a human being, if you just, if you're unclear, if you think ice cream is better than uh, then this information, <laughs> then then go and watch a video of a of a mother um, having her baby taken away, and it it's um, it's important to watch that if you are unclear about how horrible this is that the the baby is in the uterus for nine months just like a human baby, and we again a judging we are so judgmental to believe that that somehow is okay to do to take a baby from its mom because we want unnecessary white liquid in our diet. Um, so it's really this, yeah. So number one was dairy. I think number yeah. two and number three are dairy as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back but This to, all goes back into yoga too. Like yeah. really, if we are practicing, so for me, when I talk about practicing yoga, what I do in the form of movement is only making me stronger and more connected and and you know, breathing better and, and releasing emotions that I, that aren't going to help me be lighter and brighter and literally vibrate at a, at a higher level because all for the, all for the purpose of being a better person. That to me is the practice of yoga. And so if, you know, I think this is a huge elephant in the room in yoga and we can, I think that should be a whole other podcast, quite frankly, but um, there's many people who are not, who are not vegetarian or vegan and practicing yoga. And I just think that there is something really lost there if you aren't exploring um, why, why you wouldn't go down that path when it's a path of kindness and compassion and the truest form of practicing yoga. So again, this is without judgment because Eunice and I both have been on the other end of it. Um, I was raised non-vegan, eating a lot of meat. And so it's, it's, but I think once the, once the information is there and you are willing to open your heart to it, it's actually a beautiful light-filled and joyful experience. But um, it also is great for your health. So get rid of dairy and you will find so many amazing things. What what did you find with your when you got rid of dairy? Any particular, even if it was subtle, differences in your health? It's funny. I'm I'm actually not a very good example of that because I was a junk food vegan for so long. Oh yeah, yeah. Because so it wasn't like right away, yeah, yeah. yes, and because which is okay as well. It's a good good trans- transition sometimes. Definitely, because mm-hmm. there are so many products out there now, and I'm sure it was different. You know, a bunch of years ago, years ago yeah. yeah. But there are so many products. You know, you go to Whole Foods and you can find like vegan marshmallows. Oh yeah, they didn't have any of that. <laughs> the vegan cheese was like because pl- you can't live without yeah. marshmallows. Yeah. yeah. So I transitioned to all these like vegan products that were probably not very good for me, but at least I felt that I was, you know, taking a step away from the cruelty and the environmental destruction of, of the animal food industry. Um, so I was a very like transitional Mm -hmm. yoga. Like I went through that phase where we ate the, um, like the garden, you know, right. I forget what they call them, like garden. They're, they're like chicken nuggets, but they're not chicken. Right. And they're really tasty. Um, and then there's field roast and there's chow cheese and there's like all these things. So we went through that period and then very slowly started, I think just recently, I feel like we've started moving into a more like whole foods mm-hmm. diet. So the transition that I saw was not very big. Right. Because I was, you know, I felt pretty good to begin with. And then I didn't really feel any difference. Mm-hmm. And which in itself was great because I could say to people, look, you know, I didn't... I you didn't like, like have it like a drop of energy exactly, or anything like that. Yeah. Right. But when people tell me that they've become vegan and they do feel a drop in energy, it's generally because they're not eating enough mm-hmm. because animal foods are so calorically dense right. that, you know, eating a small piece of meat will give you an incredible amount of calories 
But if you eat the same amount of vegetables, say, you're not going to get the same energy from that. So you just need to eat more. You need to eat more grains, you need more nuts and seeds, avocados, whatever. Yeah. So for me, I didn't, I didn't feel that big transition. Mm-hmm. I will say that earlier this year, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, um, which I don't, the doctors that had nothing to do with my being vegan and actually had to do with a lot of stress in my life and like this unexpected trauma. And I lost 20 pounds, mm-hmm. uh, which was what sent me to the doctor because I've never, that's never happened to me before. And I got all of those 20 pounds back in muscle. <laughs> she's already, she's badass already. And now diet. she's like a superhero. <laughs> and now I can say all my muscles are vegan. Yeah. And, it. <laughs> and it's, and I'm proof, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. like I did not have, I wasn't like, oh my God, I've lost 20 pounds. I've got to go like eat my steaks and my, you know, roast chickens. It was like, no, I, I ate quinoa. I ate tofu. I ate lots of leafy green vegetables and root vegetables and, you know, peppers and bok choy and cruciferous vegetables, um, soups and stews. And people were like, how are you going to gain weight on that? I'm like, I don't know. This is what, actually it was Dr. Furman who gave me the the diet. And I was like, this is what he told me. I think he knows what he's talking about. So I'm going to so. try yeah. it. And, and I did. And, you know. You are proof, you are totally proof that, uh, that, because I, I I saw you when you were at your lowest weight um from the Crohn's disease and and I was like yeah, a skeleton yeah and you, you know? all um you look amazing I mean and I feel like probably going in having had a, like a nice reserve being vegan I'm I'm sure mm-hmm. that helped you in some way in your yeah. in your pitfall yeah. because even though you had lost a lot of weight that I'm sure led to some low energy but you were still coming to classes and. I was still kind of classes yeah. and the yoga also mm-hmm. was so important. The yoga plus the vegan diet. And I have no symptoms now. And I don't know statistically how unusual that is, but I think it's pretty unusual I, from what I've heard no with Crohn's disease. Yeah. Yes. Um, but the yoga was so important um, because every day I could come and do something that was both strengthening and allowed me to breathe deeper, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, calm that nervous system and calm the inflammation. And it was something that I had in my memory, my muscle memory Yes, already. And it was a muscle memory of being strong. Mm-hmm. I love and that. That was so important because my body knew what to do, even though it wasn't as strong as it used to be. And I was like, oh, I remember what it feels like to have that strength, you know? That's amazing. So that leads me to my next question since you wrote about what the health, what would you say to you is true health? When you think of like, if somebody said, what is true, truly healthy um, look and feel like to you? You kind of just said it, but. I think true health is being your most vibrant and your strongest self without any obstructions or limitations. And, you know, not having to, to worry about how this is going to feel because you're not because your health isn't going to stand up to it or not being able to do a particular thing because you're worried you won't be healthy enough to to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I think it's 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 freedom. It's freedom. <laughs> there you go. Uh, that's you what go. it is. Freedom. It's freedom. Yeah, that's awesome. That's what I'm looking for. It's like my number one. Yes. It's my first class in my teacher training is freedom because that is what we want. We want it in our body. Yeah. And I think through the vehicle of the body we get it in our um in our spirit and our mind and that, yeah, that we have choices and that we just feel light because when you are free, you're light. And I think all of the stuff we've talked about, the the practice of yoga, the breathing, the choices we make um, in terms of being vegan and, you know, having a healthy diet, but also a healthy and compassionate diet, a heart, mm-hmm. a heart um, power diet. I think all of those contribute to that sense of freedom and lightness. Yeah. And going back to, you know, what we were originally talking about with the emotional state, the connection between the physical body and the emotions, the mental or the spiritual or emotional state is, is so strong and mysterious and just undeniable, Yes, you know, and when you are strong, when you have a practice that makes you feel 
physically like strong and fierce, like you can do anything, then it magically transfers over to how you approach the world. It's like, I can't say enough about it. Like the yoga practice, I really feel like coming to the studio every day, I feel like saved my life. (laughs) (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Absolutely. Yeah. But it was like something that I could hold on to in a storm and it was always there. And that's what pulled me through, you know? I love that. I love that. Um, And just, so we're going to have to have Eunice back and I'd love to hear what kind of questions you'd like to have for Eunice in the future because she is such a wealth of information. Um, Closing off today, since you have been with me for a while, how would you describe the movement by Lara kind of yoga model? Um, I would say that it is, it is an intelligent and integrated way of tapping into your body, your breath, your mind, and your spirit. Oh, I can't really say much more than that, but thank you. <laughs> so everyone, make sure that you move today and you vibrate at a higher level because we're pulling for you, both Eunice and I are, and sending you huge hugs. Huge hugs.